Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and today we're speaking with Rhett Kessler. Many of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while now will well recognize Rhett. He's the Chief Investment Officer and Fund Manager for Pangana's Australian Equities Fund, which is a, an investment fund that manages about $1.2 billion. It has the objective of beating the risk-free rate, which is around 1% at the moment, by 6%. So the objective in the current market of returning 7% per annum through the cycle. It's a very absolute return-focused fund that can move to cash and won't often look like many of the Australian indexes or other funds in the market. Performance since inception, which I want to say is around 10 or 11 years, is 10.4% per annum. So a very strong track record, albeit that RET has had a pretty tough year uh, that started to come good in the last six months. And in fact, one of the things we discuss in the podcast is dealing with that adversity. We also get into the weeds with regard to some of the value traps that he sees in the market, as well as the outlook for investors. Please remember that this podcast isn't, nor is it designed to be a specific recommendation for anyone. I encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also to seek advice prior to making any investments. Please remember to send me your feedback. It's really appreciated. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I certainly did. Rhett Kessler, welcome back to Inside the Road. Great to be here. Thanks, David. Rhett, you are a part of a very small, valued, loved club where this would be your third podcast. So uh, thank you for participating and I hope you like being part of that club. Uh, it's always a pleasure, David. Uh, perhaps we could kick off, Rhett, uh, I, I think it's safe to say since we've spoken to you about a year and a quarter ago and during that time, I think there was quite a speed bump, which it's nice to talk about it now because I think it's corrected. But perhaps you could talk for our listeners about that period that you had, which I want to say is Q4 last year Correct. on the calendar. Um, just talk us through that process and your thinking because you know, obviously the fund has had uh, a great history since inception, up 11.1% compound annual growth, drive away no more to pay as you'd say. Uh, there was in that last sort of 12 month yep. period that, that speed bump and I'm interested to hear in how you thought about that and how it tested you and uh, uh, you know, just describe that, that process as an investor. Okay. Uh, if I'd known you were going to ask that question, I probably wouldn't have done the podcast because it was, it was a horrible period, but we're upfront about that. It's probably the toughest period I've been through. So to give you some insight. Um, we think we're exceptionally lucky, and, uh, and you make your own luck, but still to have an 11-year track record of unbroken positive returns every financial year. But gee, that, that quarter really tested us. And I don't think, David, in my, my 20 or 30 years of, of being in this industry, I have ever been so tempted to change my spots. Uh, the temptation was enormous. And I think I mentioned this on the last podcast, but... But one of the, the metaphors that we use is that we're sitting on a, on a ship and we're driving the ship and we constantly have, you know, the one hand on the tiller, which is our um, capital preservation, and the other one on the sail, which defines how fast we go, which is our 
risk-free plus 6% return. And all around us, and, and there have never been more around us than there was during that quarter, are these sirens standing on these rocks saying, buy me, buy me, buy me. And I know that the moment I take my hands off the tiller or the sail and I reach for them, that I'm going to come a cropper on the rocks. Um, and that's, why, well, that's the kind of temptation I'm referring to. Now, we absolutely did not change our spots. Um, some people would say because, you know, we don't know how to do anything else, and there's probably some truth to that. But at the end of the day, we, we, we base our decisions on fundamentals um, and, and, and a very, very clear investment thesis about why we buy things um, to preserve capital and make money. Um, so during that period, nothing seemed to work. We're still not 100% sure what happened because it was global. Unfortunately, we were in very good company. A lot of people, portfolios just didn't work the way they were supposed to. Um, ours almost worked in the opposite direction as to what we thought it should work. So the more defensive you were, the more rational that you were, the more you got hurt. Now, it has corrected since then. Um, we know that ETF outflows were a big cause of it. We know that movement of money away from active managers to passive managers was another big cause of it. Um, we know that the inflection on interest rates or perceived inflection on interest rates and the cost of money was also a big cause of it. But at the end of the day, it feels like something went wrong in the plumbing. And so um, we haven't changed our spots. It was a terrible period. Uh, I used to come home and my kids would say to me, Dad, you look really beaten up. Why are you still doing this? And I would say, what do you mean? And they said, well, you, don't, you, know, you shouldn't be doing this. You should retire. And I said, you know, well, there's absolutely no way I would leave my fund in this state. So absolutely no way am I going to you know, back off from this challenge. And then my oldest said to me, yeah, but Dad, as soon as you fixed it, you'll love it again. And so you're never going to leave. And he's probably right. I mean, I love what I do. Um, there's no doubt I lost a lot of hair, whatever I had left. Um, but we stuck to our guns and we've been validated. Um, it wasn't pleasant, though. And when you talk about your methodology and your style, everyone in this industry wants to pigeonhole people. You're a value investor. You're a, mm. you know, a GARP. You know, all these acronyms and terms, they come along. When, when all the research houses and everybody asks you to summarize your style, how do you articulate that to them? So it's, it's a very good question because you're right. I mean, there are times when we pigeonhole this value. Yeah. Probably more often than growth, if those are the two most often used pigeonholes. For us, we're completely agnostic about whether it's value or growth. So our underlying thesis is first, don't lose money. And secondly, if we can buy something that can feed us with at least 6% in underlying cash flows, not dividends, but underlying cash flows that the business generates, growing with reasonable certainty to 10% in five years, that's good for us. Now, to grow from 6 to 10 is a lot of growth. Um, and so if you only had stocks like that in your portfolio, you would be considered a growth manager. However, if you buy something that starts on a 10, you don't need any growth. You need sustainability. And if you only got those in your portfolio, you'd be designated a value manager. Now, we're agnostic about which ones we hold because both have a place in our portfolio. At the end of the day, my job is to build a well-diversified, ever-growing collection of annuity streams 
that throw off at least 6% in additional cash, growing to 10%. If I get it right, that is the best way to create or maintain financial independence that I know. Um, if you buy something just because you think it's going up without fundamental valuations and it doesn't go up, what do you do? Even worse, if it goes down, you tend to get shaken out at the worst possible time. And that's why we just don't do that. Now, I hear a lot of people in markets talking at the moment that never before have there been so many value traps. And, and in my mind and language, they're referring to the fact that there are companies that are beaten down, downtrodden, that look cheap on historical metrics, whether that be price earnings or whatever else you want to look at. But the company's prospects have moved on, i.e. there's some sort of technological change. They're never going to come good. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm interested because I note that you're a holder of Telstra and Viva Energy. And I think some people may say, well, hold on. These are businesses that, yes, they look cheap. And yes, people might have screens on their Bloomberg that have them rate through and et cetera, et cetera. But I'm interested in your, your comments when you hear that in the market about there's, A, do you agree with this theory that there's more value traps than ever before? And then B, how do you think about some of these companies that are probably out of favour in the market where you think that they've got great value? Yeah, it'd be difficult for me to say definitively whether there are more value traps around than before. We do know that there's a bigger bifurcation between value and growth. And some of that has got to do with the cost of money. But a lot has got to do with the amount of disruption that's happening, where ecosystems and power bases between stakeholders are shifting due to technology, technological changes. So, so yes, there, there, there are, when you have a period of high disruption, there are periods where there's a lot of value traps because they've been left behind, just hasn't been identified yet. We try to get around that, David, by asking who's got the power in every stakeholder relationship. And so if you're losing power because technology is disrupting it away from you, then, then yep, it's a value trap. And we constantly ask that question. I mean, one of the key ones we're, we're asking, I'll come back to the Telstra and Viva in a sec, but will the home loan industry, the profitability pool of a home loan industry, be bigger or smaller than it is now in five years? And for a long time, we've been pursuing this question. And I think we're starting to get more and more evidence that that disruption is happening, and therefore maybe the banks are a value trap. But let's shift now to your question about Telstra and how do we think about that when it's called a value trap. And I'll start with Telstra and go to Viva if that's okay. So when I look at Telstra, the first thing we ask ourselves, for every dollar you put into Telstra, what are you buying? We think it's 45 cents for the strongest and best mobile phone network um, in Australia. And secondly, about 40 cents in the dollar is um, annuity streams and once-off payments from the government for the, in return for the MBN infrastructure and, and conversion of customers. We value that 40 cents at quite a generous discount rate. And if the cost of money is a little bit higher than most people seem to think, we're okay. In fact, we'd still do pretty well. Um, if it is as low as most people seem to think, uh, as indicated by long bond rates, we could make a lot of money from that part of the business. So then that really leaves the core cool question is, is the best mobile phone network 
in Australia a value trap. We think they have a two-year start on 5G. We think they have they are excellent marketers in that they've been able to continue their, their um, price premium for longer than five years. And in fact, it's grown over the last of the recent time, which tells me that the customer perceives it to be as a better network. Thirdly, I would proffer that if I've got four teenage kids, uh, we went without Wi-Fi for one night. Um, it is the new oxygen. Have you anyone... ever traveled with kids, teenage kids, and, and it's, it's amazing. You come to a new hotel, new location, nobody can live until everyone's on the Wi-Fi. Until everyone's connected. It's yeah. amazing. And then, of course, when you do your analysis on how much data you need for your family, and you sort of work through it all, and you think, oh, well, that's okay, all I can say is double it and you might be close. That's very true. That's very true. Um, and it gives rise to an unusual form of economics that you have to think about on a more serious side for for, for estimating the driving the, the main profit driver in a business like Telstra. So we call it gigabyte economics or gig economics. And essentially what it means is that can the revenue you get per gig of data fall by less than the cost of providing that gig of data. So really what's going to happen to the margin? Because the demand appears to be infinite, and the more you make it available, the more it will be used. And so we think that 5G is a real game changer for Telstra, in that they got lucky with Huawei being outlawed in networks. So the competitors, they've got about a two-year start over their competitors. And I say we're lucky because the others have got Huawei in the existing networks, and Telstra doesn't. So you know sometimes you need a bit of luck as well. So we think that's, that's a good business. Now, you have to ask yourself is, you know, so what happens? And there's a lot of questions about the rest of the businesses, the fixed line business, the NAS business, et cetera, et cetera. But when 85 cents in the dollar is made up by things you understand and you have a bit of faith in and are pretty cheap, we think we can make money out of that. Viva's a bit more problematic in that not only is the combustion engine being disrupted itself, and, and, and the fuel to provide energy to that combustion engine is obviously then the core product. What's the future for it? But secondly, the industry was um, distorted by the really crazy arrangement that Viva had with Shell mm -hmm. for several years, where Viva, due to the power they had, set the price that they would supply the fuel at to Shell and Shell, I mean, sorry, to Coles. Who, who, was, who owned the Shell uh, franchise. And, and as a result, Coles was very unhappy with that pricing and therefore put their own pricing at the Bowser up very high. And that created an umbrella pricing system for the independence in the industry. So basically, prices were too high, allowed a lot of new entrants, um, which, which corrupted the industry. What we're seeing now is that that's being fixed. And it's being fixed in a painful way for the industry. Um, and so there's a valley, a small valley ahead. And I think we're quite almost through that valley, where the independents are now finding it very tough and starting to drop out. And so you'll emerge on the other side in a much better industry. Now, why do we think they have the power to, to keep doing that? Is because they dominate Victoria through production capacity, 
and distribution capacity. And they dominate, well, they don't dominate, but they co-dominate New South Wales together with Caltex with their positioning of their service stations. They have the big volume sites. And so we think, you know, fun economic fundamentals will assert themselves. Are we taking a big risk due to the cheapness of the stock? So is it a value trap? Time will tell, but we've done an enormous amount of work on it. We think we'll be okay. Not, doesn't mean we will be, we'll get mm -hmm. some wrong, mm. but, but um, we think it will play out the way we think. And we look, we've got this investment thesis and we keep testing it. Rick, you mentioned that you're forecasting out the future cash flow of these businesses and using a discount rate to bring them back to today's valuation. Has that rate, that discount rate, changed to reflect the lower cost of capital, the lower cost of money? And that it seems, it appears to me that in March, April this year, around the election time, there was a rather large flip in markets where everyone was expecting interest rates to start going up, and now the prevailing view tends to be that we're going to have lower interest rates for longer. Um, and therefore, I guess the corollary from that is if you buy into discount rates of being lower, that the amount, the, the amount that you can pay for a company is now acceptable to be, instead of 16, 17 times multiple, 21, 22 times is, well, that's actually fair that's value. That's the new normal, yeah. That's the new normal. So have you changed your discount rate and you know, is 21, 22 the new buy? Yeah. So, so I'm going to just ask you if, if I can just go back and say we don't actually have a discount rate in, in the normal sense of the word. What we do is we say if we owned 100% of that business at a certain price, what's the amount we could scrape off it, put in our pocket, mm. as a percentage of what we paid for the business? So if I can get 6%, that's that after-tax cash earnings yield, that's the number I'm happy to use. Now... I always said you could value a business, only need to know three things. One is the quantum of future cash flows. One is the, uh, the second thing is the certainty of those future cash flows. And the third thing is the cost of money. And you're right, if you change your cost of money, that's the discount rate you're referring to. Now, we used to spend all our time on the quantum and certainty of future cash flows and almost no time on the cost of money because you could use the long bond rate and that would be it. But currently the long bond rate is at a 230-year since-recorded history low. Mm -hmm. right? We've got a, a, a U.S. long bond yield uh, chart that, that shows it's, it's at an all-time low. So I'm very uncomfortable with using that as the rate, um, and we won't. Right? So that's the way, short answer, we haven't changed our discount rate for that purpose. Right? Um, we know that, the low, that as the cost of money goes down, long-duration assets go up in value. Unfortunately, the reverse is true. So, I have never ever spent more time on trying to work out what the true cost of money is. Fortunately, there's still enough opportunities out there that we haven't had to change our cost of money. Um, so we're still about 80, 85 percent invested. Okay. 15 if we cash. Yep, we found a lot of things. Um, patience works really works well in your favour, um, and so we're very very comfortable. Um, very, very comfortable that we haven't had to change our cost of money assumptions. Can I get you, Rhett, to talk a little bit about the bifurcation you're talking about in the market when I look at one of the slides you're using for investors that doesn't translate well to a podcast, of course. But if you talk about in the market at the moment, you've got you know, Afterpay, WiseTech, 
Promedicus, uh, Nanasonics, all of these companies at really sky high multiples. And I think the closest you get to a high multiple company is something like CSL. Um, how do you see that affecting the market at the moment? Mm. So that's the million dollar question, right? So uh, we have a thesis that the, the, the long, long time favorite fable of the emperor has no clothes um, might, might happen. Um, with regard to the share prices. So at the moment, you have a plethora of fantastic business models run by competent management, and we really are blessed for choice in this country at the moment. I don't think there's ever been a time I've ever seen a bigger group of great businesses run by really good management at one time. So there's no, not for one minute saying that these companies we've just spoken about aren't great businesses run by competent management. The problem I'm having is there seems to be no limit as to the valuation placed on them. And my biggest concern is if anything happens to these companies that's mildly positive, the reaction built up over many years is to make them more and more and more expensive. So we've detached from reality and fundamentals. My concern is that one day, and it started with um, the WeWork IPO, it started with the Uber you know, latitude, you could argue as well. There's been a whole host of incidents where eventually people have gone, enough's enough. That's just too expensive. That just makes no sense. And we're starting to see it even in the listed market where, you know, the WiseTech issue about a shorter, you know, writing this whole short report, I thought the much bigger story was who's actually buying at a 200 multiple? Who's got the courage to put more money down at a 200 Similarly, Afterpay, similarly, Nearmap, you know, Costa was a great example of an agricultural company. There was just no limit to the multiple that was being applied to it, come screaming back to earth. Um, I have no problem with the quality of these businesses. The only thing I have a problem with is, is how do you value them? And so we've managed to avoid those. We've stayed away from them. Um, it's hurt when you watch these things. Any of these that you've said no to over the last two years more than doubled. And that hurts. I mean, we used to own Afterpay. We used to own uh, Nearmap we used to, when, when we could wrap our heads around the multiples. Um, the most recent, and we're still not quite sure why it got to the level it is, which is Jumbo, uh, has fallen probably you know 30% in the last few days on no news. Um, and so we're very concerned about the distortions and the impacts on investors that... Um, that somebody calling out that the emperor's actually got no clothes will have on these valuations. How are you thinking about the banks at the moment, Brett? Scratching my head. Um, look, they're good businesses. It seems like competition's coming from everywhere. Yeah, competition. And pressure. There is no doubt that, that they could be the country's biggest value traps. There's no doubt that they could be. However... The one power they still have that we feel gives them a really good fighting chance is that they have the lowest cost of funding. Now, at the moment, that doesn't seem to carry much weight because, you know, money's free. But like all things, that will revert, right? I mean, especially the cost of money. Um, and so that is, they've also been shackled and distracted. Um, and they've let quite a few players in. Now, there's a host of things they could do, but I think they're all trying to be below the radar at the moment. So I'm not making excuses for them. 
there haven't been great investments for the last few years. The dividends have, have, have barely kept them positive in terms of the TSR. Um, but certainly, as I mentioned earlier, I think is that there's a stronger and stronger chance that the profit pool from their most profitable business, which is home loan lending, will be substantially less in five years than it is today, unless they can get that holy grail of cutting their costs. And we are spending an inordinate amount of time in that part of the value chain. Brett, how are you thinking about, how's your mood with regard or, or pulse with regard for the next 12 months or 18 months to how the portfolio is positioned right at the moment in light of the macroeconomics that you're seeing? Hmm. Sorry, David, and the reason you're asking that question is, how is it possible that valuations continue to expand when economic fundamentals underlying yep. those valuations continue to deteriorate? Right? And that is, that's the single biggest, biggest issue we're asking ourselves. Now, we're, we're a bottom-up approach, so we have a number of companies on 12 to 15% after-tax cash earnings yields. And people would say, oh, you know, the naysayers would say they're value traps. We think, well, there's quite a bit of value that could be trapped before we actually don't have a positive return in those stocks. Um, and so we're focusing most of our time on making sure that they're good businesses run by competent management with good balance sheets is really important. And we're finding that the strong are getting stronger. That's a really important thesis. And so if we can be on the side of the power at a discount with competent management and good balance sheets, we're very happy to load up. And you've seen us you know, hold an inordinately large position in a critical, mm -hmm. um, you know, ResMed, a CSL, where they just have all the power, very efficient business models, great management teams, and importantly, long visibility. So I would add an aristocrat to that. Um, um, do, do you think the, you alluded to it before with latitude, and I think six, that makes six IPOs that have now been pulled mm -hmm. in the Australian market. Do you think that's a healthy process that may extend the market rather than having it bear out in a different way and all these things float and collapse? I think I said in the last podcast that there's a very unusual bifurcation between the, private, the, the listed sector and the private, sec, private equity sector, that multiples in the private are actually higher than enlisted, whereas normally it's the other way around. That tells you that if you don't, if you don't have to mark, if, if you're not under public scrutiny, you can charge anything you want for, for, the, for the value of your business. So I think there's a lot of that going on where vendors who put in money at ridiculous multiples are now asking the listed market to test it, and they've been found wanting. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is probably a bit more worrying, is that with the amount of money that's gone from active to passive, something I predicted a while ago, how much money do you need for, to go from active to passive before the pool of active price setters gets really small and much more powerful? It creates right. an opportunity. It creates great opportunity. Do, do you have any methodologies for tracking or techniques for tracking the opportunities that that presents? i.e. are you watching companies or have a methodology about to track companies out of the ASX 300 and as they come in, take positions, etc.? Is that something that's in your no, style? It's, it's not really it's, fundamental. No, it's not fundamental. So we, we, we do maybe one step logic further than that. So mm -hmm. what you're finding now is if something's not a sexy story, doesn't have a charismatic CEO, 
with absolutely no bearing on the underlying quality of the business and the cash flows, we can pick those up at a discount. Mm -hmm. So one of the tricks I do use is I will go back. If, if a really good fundamental story comes out, usually share prices react to it. Our stance is to take that story and put it into a for later file. And what we generally find is that once, as time goes past, the heat comes out of that stock, that story gets further and further in, you know, in people's mind, they move on to the next best thing. We get closer and closer to that investment thesis playing out, so it has more value. And we tend to revisit that for later file every three months to see which stories, which we thought were too expensive, have trickled back to us or come back to us with greater certainty. And that's been a very, very profitable area. And, and, and I suspect, if I think back, that's happened more and more. Brett, thank you very much. I hope to be joining you uh, next year at some point with uh, uh, a good solid year like the one we've had. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.